workers can see the need for to be represented in the workplace. And I think it's in the national interest that they be represented in the workplace. I think labor organizations are fundamental to a democratic society. And uh, more people who can see that and believe it, I think the better off we'll be. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Ray Marshall who is Professor of Economics Emeritus and Rappaport Centennial Chair in Economics and Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He is renowned for his work in industrial relations and labor economics and was Secretary of Labor in the U.S. Department of Labor from 1977 to 1981. Ray, welcome to The Work Goes On. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. It's just a pleasure. I, I, I'm so glad we can do this. Let's let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in uh, North Louisiana in West Carroll Parish. The closest town was Oak Grove, uh, Louisiana, but uh, my father was a, uh, a farmer near there. And we lived there until about, uh, I was born in 1928, and when I was four, we moved to Mississippi, uh, partly because my uh, father had gotten uh, malaria pretty bad, and he needed to get out of that part of Louisiana, which was mosquito-infested. And we moved to Jackson, Mississippi, where I uh, lived uh, from the time I was four, actually until I was about 15. So uh, the first part of my life in Jackson was growing up uh, and during the Great Depression. And as one of my friends said, uh, Mississippi had been practicing for the Depression for 50 years. So we took it in greater stride than <laughs> a lot of other people. So, uh, it, but life was not good, but it, it, it was good in a sense, but it was precarious. And uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, my mother died and I went to the Mississippi Baptist Orphanage when I was 11 years old. And yeah, uh, that was a good experience for me for a variety of reasons. One was that they had a great deal of security being in an, in an orphanage uh, relative to the life I'd had before. Uh, the other reason that it, is that it was a good experience is because it taught me a lot. It taught me how to uh, live with other people and react to them and uh, understand interpersonal relations. But the orphanage also had a very good school, which I didn't realize at the time, but I did in retrospect. Uh, the principal was a retired judge, and they 
had three uh, women teachers, and they were very good. Their main objective uh, was to get you ready for life, not necessarily the next grade. Uh, the old school only went to eight grades, and uh, Mr. Buffington, the principal, assumed that none of us would get much past the eighth grade. And therefore, his job was to get you ready for life. And he, he says, I'm going to give you a tool that if you'll keep it sharp, it'll serve you well the rest of your life. And that tool was how to learn. So he gave a systematic, he made you learn by doing right. He also knew how to motivate you. First little essay I ever wrote for him in the sixth grade, he came and put it down on my desk and says, Ray, your name is very important. Don't ever put it on a paper like that again. And he had it all marked up. And I never, from then on, never did a paper without wondering what Mr. Buffington would give me on this one. <laughs> but uh, that was the kind of motivation that was was really good. He also taught us to be skeptical of what we read. Uh, he came to class one day. This was when I was in the eighth grade. And he had a book that the, teacher, that the state wanted us to read. And it was Mississippi history. And he says, now the state insists that you young scholars read this book. But after you read it, we're going to discuss it. Now, what I want you to think about as you read it is what is the what is there that you know about in Mississippi history that's not in this book? And, of course, we knew a lot. The book was mainly about old white men. <laughs> so we, he, he taught us to be very skeptical of, of what we read. He taught us to learn by doing. <laughs> And the other other part of it was that the orphanage was self-sufficient. Uh, we, I was a milk boy, uh, plowed, planted, knew about crops. You learn how to do things. But uh, you also learned how to combine what you were learning in school with what you had to do. Like, for example, I had to learn some genetics to be able to tell why some cows were like they were. I had to know the ratio of the feed to the milk. So he, they were teaching us uh, by doing because that was the thing that they believed was uh, most important for you. He must have been surprised at the at the amount of education you ended up getting. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but that was that. It was like a very uh, good school today, and that many not many people uh, really get. Then they. The other thing is that it caused you to feel that you were useful because you were helping uh, support yourself and 600 other kids. And by planting, plowing, all the rest, and learning to do that, and it taught you to learn uh, to be resourceful in uh, dealing with problems. But when I was uh, 14 years old, I decided it was time for me to leave the orphanage because I knew about all I thought I needed to know. I had just about finished the eighth grade, so I could read, write, multiply, subtract, and add and divide, and what else was there? You know, so I, I left, I got a job uh, in 
Jackson in a dental laboratory. Uh, and I worked at that for about uh, a year. And then when I, in 1943, when I turned 15, I decided to join the Navy. And so joined I joined the, the Navy. Navy when I, yeah, I joined the Navy at, when I was 15. And that was another whole set of really good experiences for me. I was a, a radioman, so I went to a very yeah, good school in the Navy. You know, taught us physics, and electronics, and typing, uh, other things. And then when I went, I was in the Naval Amphibious Forces in the Pacific, and I learned a lot there about uh, how to, and more than I had in the orphanage about how to get along with people and how important it was for young people to be involved in a common enterprise because you, you forgot about all kinds of things like religion and politics, and you concentrated on character of the people. Most of the people on my uh, ship were Catholics. It was the most important religion. Well, I had not seen many Catholics, but I learned to appreciate them. Uh, I also learned a lot about wisdom from the officers that I had. Uh, and when you're 15, 16, 17, as I was, uh, you don't know a whole lot about wisdom. <laughs> you, know, you, you know how to learn how to do what you're doing. But I had very wise uh, uh, officers. My captain was especially wise. And... I learned to appreciate that. For example, during the typhoon off Okinawa, my job as a radio man was to track the storm because uh, my commodore had reached the conclusion that the best place to be uh, during a typhoon is in its wake. So we stayed in its wake. And uh, Admiral Halsey and others thought the best place to be was in port. Well, we made out a whole lot better at sea than he did in port because he crashed his ships into each other and had all kinds of trouble. But the other thing that happened during that storm uh, that really learned, taught me the importance of wisdom was uh, while I was tr listening to the weather planes, the weather planes told me that there were uh, six Japanese planes in the area and they were going to take cover. So they took, they went into the clouds so the uh, Japanese couldn't see them. And the captain was sleeping in the conning tower. So I woke him up, gave him the message. And ordinarily, when you uh, have enemy aircraft in the area, you sound general quarters. And the captain initialed the note that I gave him and turned over like he was going back to sleep. So I said, he never read the note, so he better. He didn't tell me. So I shook him and said, "Captain, you want me to sound general quarters?" He says, "No." And he sat up on the edge of his bunk and said, "Marshal," says uh, those planes, those Japanese planes, are not going to come down into this weather until it lifts. And you know what they want you to do? And I said, no, sir. He said, sound general quarters. <laughs> and he said, you know why they want you to do that? And I said, no, sir. He said, because the crew will be all sleepy and uh, won't be able to deal with them when the weather lifts and come, comes down. 
Let's not let them do it. Let's let them get by. Let's let the crew sleep. Well, those were very important kinds of lessons that uh, that I learned to appreciate. You know, that was very good. And then I learned, you know, I thought during the war that uh, Japanese were kind of subhuman people. And then when I got into the, the occupation and saw what the Japanese were really like, uh, I, I learned to appreciate them. And it kind of gave me the inoculation against prejudice. I'd already gotten inoculated against Catholics and Jews, you know, not being prejudiced against them because of my, my Navy experience. But then when I uh, got out of the Navy, I'd, I'd, one of the things that I decided to do maybe was to get a high school diploma and get back in the Navy because you couldn't go very far without a high school diploma. So my captain told me about the GED, which had just started uh, for veterans at first. And I decided, well, I'll get out and take the GED and get a high school diploma and then I'll have a better career whether I want go back into the Navy or do anything else. So I, I got out and I, I signed up for high school courses in the community college in Mississippi, Hines County Community College. It was junior college in those days. And took, took second year English and second year algebra, only two high school courses I ever had and took the GED and passed it, but they wouldn't give me the diploma because they said you had to have four high school units. But the registrar at the community college said, forget that. Well, when I asked the, guy, the GED guy, what should I do at, uh, to get two more high school units so it account? And he said, well, take 11th grade English and first year algebra, you know, you'll do all right with those. And so I, that didn't make a lot of sense. But the reg, registrar let me into community college as entrance as a result of that. Now, a lesson I learned from that was that uh, community college is a very important institutions. They're a lot more flexible. And that uh, I also learned how important the GI Bill was which is the way I went to school. I went then on and finished at the community college and then went to Bill Sapp's college in Jackson, Mississippi for a bachelor's degree and a master's degree at LSU and was an instructor at LSU and got a uh, Rockefeller fellowship to go uh, and get a PhD. And that's how I went to Berkeley and, and got a PhD. How did you end up at Berkeley? How, how did how did it come out that Berkeley was your place? Uh, I first started out uh, thinking I'd be a lawyer, an undergraduate. And I had a wise professor and friend uh, who taught constitutional law. This is in Mississippi in 1948. And he says, well, what kind of law do you want to practice, Ray? I said, well, I don't want to practice law. I want to be a politician because yeah, the problems of this state are political. He says, well, what would you say to the people of Mississippi? And when I told him, he shook his head and says, you better get into something else. And so that's how I switched the economics. He, told me. <laughs> he said, life is hard for most people in Mississippi, and the only fun they get is politics. And you're going to worry the hell out of them. They don't want to hear all that stuff you're talk- talking about. So 
I decided that I'd become an economist and go to graduate school. Going from Jackson, Mississippi to Berkeley, California, it's got to be about as big a change in your life as ever. Well, what what I did is I went down to LSU and got a master's degree and was an instructor there. That's how I got the, the Rockefeller Fellowship. It was for college instructors in the South. And uh, then I, I had by that time decided I wanted to do labor economics and industrial relations. So I looked around uh, everywhere I could about schools to go to. And then I concluded at that time that Berkeley was uh, probably the very best school uh, that I could go to for labor and industrial relations. And I've concluded that that was the case. They had a very strong program there. And that's, that's the reason I went to Berkeley. Ray, you ended up at Berkeley for a good reason, I can see. Who did you work with there on your dissertation? Yeah, I worked with several people. Uh, you know, as you might know, they had a very strong labor group. Walter Galenson was uh, one of my main supervisors. And uh, Walter was very strong on the comparative method in in uh, labor economics. And I, I found that to be a powerful tool and liked to work with him. I worked with Charlie Gulick, Clark Kerr, uh, uh, Arthur Ross, uh, Van Dusen Kennedy. All those were good uh, labor great, people great at, at Berkeley at the time. Was your dissertation the, the book on labor in the South? It was. It started out as uh, my dissertation. Uh, John Dunlop, who was a Berkeley graduate, uh, was there when I defended the, the, the dissertation, or shortly after. In fact, I met him the first time in Clark Kerr's house, and uh, he w- said that he would like to publish my dissertation at uh, Harvard. And I told him that uh, I'd be happy for him to do it. I'd like to do some more work on it uh, before it got ready for for publication and that I had also decided at that time uh, that I would want to spend a year abroad. So I I was a Fulbright research professor to Finland in 1955 and 56. And I told him when I got through with that, I'd come uh, come to Harvard uh, as a Wertheim fellow and we'd get the book ready for publication. So that's how that wound up. But started out as my dissertation, but it was interrupted some years. In the meantime, I'd started working on an, another uh, project for the trade union project of the Fund for the Republic uh, on uh, the racial practices of unions. So I combined those projects as I was working on the, uh, the labor in the South. Spent a, went to Finland as a Fulbright researcher professor in 55 and 56, and then came back and was a Wertheim fellow at Harvard until we finished the book. But that's how that dissertation wound up being pub- published at Harvard. The book I actually knew best and was admired, by the way, that I first ran across was The Negro and Organized Labor. I know we don't we don't use the word Negro anymore, but it nevertheless was never meant to be a an approbation. But I'll tell you why I liked it. I, I, I wrote my own dissertation in part on racial discrimination in unions. And 
the first thing I tried to do was to find out what the representation of blacks and whites was relatively in unions. And you actually had an estimate of that. I don't know if you remember that. I looked at I looked yeah, I at it again today because I, I I published a paper in in 1972 in the journal Political Economy. Well, I'm very proud of it. In fact, that paper. But I I refer to your estimate, and at that time I finally had real estimates that came out of the current population survey, and your estimate was dead on. <laughs> I don't, I, you didn't have any micro data. <laughs> yeah, and of course. Uh, I, I, I form mine from the ground up, and you form yours from the top down. You started exactly. out with the quantitatives, <laughs> and uh, you might recall you helped us help me with one of my projects and uh, on the uh, black employment in the South. Yeah, uh, when and help with the metrics on it, which was very important for us. Very, very interesting. You did a lot of work. I know you were at Louisiana State for a while teaching, but then you ended up at the University of Texas. How did that happen? Well, uh, when I decided to leave uh, Louisiana State, I uh, had several places that I had invitations to faculties to join, uh, and I decided to come to Texas because I thought it would be a good place for my children. I had four children when we came here. Had five, had five, and so you want. I wanted to be in a place that uh, where uh, it, it was good for children. But the other main thing was that I thought the University of Texas had great potential, and the, one of the reasons I did that is I don't know if you remember Alan Carter. He and I wrote a textbook together, and uh, Alan was then at the American Council on Education. And when I was trying to make up my mind, he said that Governor Conley had been elected uh, governor of Texas over the platform of former university of the first class. And when he got elected, they tried to figure out what a university of the first class was. So they went and asked. <laughs> they, they did. Uh, they, they decided they'd go to the American Council on Education, where Allen was at the time. And he said these five guys came in from Texas representing the government and asked Logan Wilson, who used to be president of the University of Texas, who was then president of the American Council, said, "What it, we the governor wants us to find out what a university of the first class is." And Logan says, well, I don't really know, but uh, I guess if you had a university that was generally regarded as among the top five in the country, you would have a university of the first class. He said, one of these Texans said, well, Texas ought to be able to get a university in the top five. And so another one started pounding the table and says, hell, man, Texas ought to have 10 universities in the top five. <laughs> so I- <laughs> So I figured with somebody with that kind of kind of naive optimism was the kind of place you wanted to be. And they, they were. <laughs> but that's that's how I made the decision to come here on those those two grounds and I never regretted it. You know, I think the uh, university uh, has made a lot of progress. It's a good place and it was a good place for my children. And were you there before there was an LBJ school? Yeah. In fact, I was chairman of the economics department when the LBJ school was formed and uh, participated in that. And we had joint faculty between the LBJ school and the 
then when I came back from Washington, I went half-time in the economics department, half-time in the LBJ school. But the LBJ school founding was uh, very important, I thought. I got to know Lyndon Johnson uh, during that time and Lady Bird Johnson. And uh, that was was a good experience because Lyndon Johnson believed that most of this world's biggest problems were political. He said they're not technical. Whether we make it on this planet or not is a political problem, but we need to have good politicians. So we need to have a a school that will turn out uh, good politicians as well as good uh, people for government service. And uh, that's what he set about doing. And I, I thought that was a really important undertaking. Johnson was at the, uh, we used to call it the Woodrow Wilson School of Public International Affairs. Yeah. He was actually at the original dedication of it. Yeah. He was here for that dedication. We now call it the School of Public and International Affairs. I have to ask you, though, we have to move on because uh, you mentioned your time in politics. You were appointed Secretary of Labor by Jimmy Carter uh, and served from 1977 through 81. How in the world did that happen? You're a professor at Texas. Next thing you know, you're Secretary of Labor. Well, I had known then-Governor Carter, President Carter, uh, in two ways. One uh, one of my projects, research projects and demonstration, what I always try to do with research is to do both research and demonstrations. And one of my projects put together by a group of foundations was uh, the task force on southern rural development. And rural development was one of the things that I've been doing a lot of research on. And we decided to have two governors on that uh, task force. And uh, Governor uh, Jimmy Carter had just been elected governor of Georgia at the time. And uh, he agreed to serve on it, but he told us he was going to be running for president. And, of course, we thought when he said that, as of what? You know, because he'd just been elected (laughs) governor of of Georgia. And uh, he wanted, he he actually used a strategy that uh, another group that I had been involved with had developed. And that that was a theory that any good Southerner uh, can be elected Democratic president of the United States because the Republicans had the Southern strategy. So if you could deny them the South and come out of the South and we were good enough to get Democratic votes in the rest of the country, uh, you could win. So that's how I first met him. And then during his campaign, I I worked with uh, him on uh, developing position papers on economics and uh, labor things. And then when he got elected, uh, he actually thought I was mainly a, a candidate to be Secretary of Agriculture and rural things, but he didn't know that I had a labor connection. But he said, your name keeps coming up on this labor list. What do you know about that? And so I said, well, that's that's my main work is not not agriculture, but uh, but labor. And then I outlined to him what I thought we needed to do if if, if I did become Secretary of Labor. I was actually supporting John Dunlop to be Secretary of Labor at that time. 
And I uh, thought that John would get it, part because AFL-CIO wanted him to get it, and because I thought that he uh, had done a good job when he was Secretary of Labor before. I had worked with him when he was Secretary of Labor. And anyway, when President Carter got elected, he uh, asked me to take the job, and I agreed to do it. And uh, that's how that came about. But they had developed a list first, and my name had come up on the labor list. I, I, now, this must have been quite an experience for you to spend four years uh, in the Labor Department. What, what are your main memories, good, good and bad? Well, uh, the main memories of the department is uh, working with President Carter because he was a really good person to work with. Uh, he was bright. He also uh, was highly moral. You could win an argument with him if you use a moral argument. You couldn't always win it if you used an economic argument alone. <laughs> and an ex- <laughs> example of that was when we were having a debate about raising the minimum wage, that most of the economic policy group uh, didn't think we ought to raise the minimum wage because you know the typical arguments that it would cause unemployment, inflation, all the rest of that. And uh, if, you could, if we couldn't agree, we had to take the president. So Charlie Schultz and... Uh, Mike Blumenthal and I, Mike was Secretary of Treasury, went to see President Carter about raising the minimum wage. And uh, they showed, brought out all their charts and graphs and showed him what, what, why it would co- we shouldn't do it. And when he, they got through, I said, Mr. President, if I wanted to waste your time, I want you to know I could demolish everything they just told you, because, but that's irrelevant. This is not an economic argument. This is a moral argument. They're about... Uh, five million people out there won't get a raise unless we give it to them. And they're not, they don't have a lot of power. Uh, you know who they are. They're, uh, they're not well educated. And the uh, second reason is we want to reform the welfare system. And if one of our principles is that people ought to make more money when they get off welfare than when they're on it. And if you don't create an incentive for them to get on it, they won't get off. And if, uh, if we don't raise the minimum wage, they'll be, they could make less when they got off. So when we got, got it resolved, President Carr said, we'll raise it. And we got out in the hall and Charlie said, that was dirty. And I said, no, Charlie, I said, you're... <laughs> I said, your problem is that you're monolingual. You know, you can only speak economics. Now, I'm bilingual. I can speak <laughs> economics and Baptist, you know. <laughs> so that's, that was one of the reasons that he was such a good man to work with. Because ordinarily, as you know, the moral thing is the right thing to do. And uh, he, he, he paid a lot of attention to that. The other thing about it was that he gave us complete freedom in selecting our staff. And uh, I had a very good one, and so I was was proud of that. I want to ask you about one of your staff members, who was a good friend of mine, died pretty young, Lamont Godwin. How did you ever come oh, to sure. know Lamont Godwin? Well, Lamont was one of, had been one of my students, too. And uh, I hired him uh, to work on one of our a couple of our projects, as a matter of fact, and uh, he he did graduate work for me after I hired him, 
and then went, came to work for me uh, before. And Lamon worked on uh, our apprenticeship outreach programs, which, you know, one of the main uh, objectives of that program was to break down discrimination in apprenticeship programs. So we we found a model that was working uh, that A. Philip Randolph Institute was running, uh, recruiting, training, and getting people into apprenticeship. Yeah. And Lamont worked on that project, and he did a great job with it. He could go out and talk to uh, all kinds of people. And uh, that was very successful. Yeah, yeah, we should tell people, Lamont, you, you and I are white, but Lamont is, uh, was uh, African-American, I think from New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, and and a, he and I wrote a paper together once that I, I, I ended up being proud of because I, I had this little simple model to predict what was going to happen to unionization rates of blacks and whites. And uh, because of the occupational changes that were taking place in this paper, I predicted that, well, we, it was a joint paper. Of course, Lamont was deeply suspicious of this, but uh, <laughs> we predict we predicted that 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 black unionization rates would be higher than white unionization rates. And when he was in your office, I never forget it. He called me back in the late seventies. Called me up one day and said, "Orly, we were right. It's true. It's already true." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course. That that turned out to be the case, but uh, Lamont was one of my. Uh, he was uh, in charge of youth programs. And I brought him in, and I brought in Ernie Green, who had been with a Philip Randolph Institute and had been in charge of one of my the, the apprenticeship outreach program, which would beca- had become national. And then Alexis Herman, also African American, and uh, th- they. Uh, all did a tremendous job. So I brought Ernie in to be assistant secretary for education and training, brought Alexis in. She had run my uh, Black Employment in the South project, and we later turned it into the Minority Women's Project. And uh, I brought her in to be head of the Women's Bureau, and she did an outstanding job there. But anyway, the, the fact that I had complete freedom to pick the staff was very important and made it the other other recollection I have about uh, what we did there was that we did a fair amount to try to improve uh, the management of the programs OSHA uh, MSHA man, mine safety we brought into the labor department we strengthened uh, the anti-discrimination program you know we brought the OFCCP Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs into the Labor Department. It had been dispersed. Mine safety had been in interior, and they'd been doing a lousy job with it because they were more interested in getting the mining done than they were protecting the safety and health of the miners. So in OSHA, for example, one of my friends from here, Ralph Yarbrough, who was a senator, was co-author of OSHA, and he called me when I got appointed and said he wanted me to pay a special attention to OSHA. said the Republicans are chasing the minnows and letting the whales get away, and uh, that uh, you you need to pay attention to what they're doing. And it was, during the campaign, we had a lot of complaints about OSHA, so I set that up as a high, high priority as a, a program to improve. And we did it. The way I did it was 
when I ask the people there, you know, what's about, I ask everybody the same set of questions. Uh, what's your pro, what's your uh, job? The head of OSHA said, uh, protect the safety and health of workers. Asked him, what's the magnitude of that job? And then he said, you know, seven million firms or something like that. And I said, well, how do you protect the safety and health of workers in five million firms or whatever your number is? And he said, through inspections and regulations. And I said, well, how many inspectors do you have? He said, a thousand. I said, listen to what you're telling me. You're telling me that uh, you you can cover that number of firms with a thousand inspectors. Yeah, but let me ask you a really important question. That is, if given the strategy you've got, uh, if I got you enough inspectors, uh, would you could you guarantee me that you would improve the probability that somebody would get killed on a project tomorrow? And he said, No. He said, we it's, it's actually happened. After they inspect a place, people get killed there. I said, we need to come up with a different strategy. So we did. You know, we got a very good assistant secretary for OSHA. And what we started doing uh, was did away with a thousand regulations one day, one of the best PR moves I ever made. And uh, nitpicking regulations didn't have anything to do with the problems. Had outcome regulations and then developed a strategy to tell companies and uh, unions on, on the job that if they could come up with a better way than OSHA was doing it and we could protect the safety and health of workers, we'd let them do what they were doing. Because the trouble with all regulations is that it's one size fits all. Well, one size doesn't fit all. And what people in the workplace should have the power and knowledge to deal with the problem. And the other thing I found, I went out and worked as an OSHA inspector to see uh, what the job was like. And I found out uh, doing that that a lot of the companies who thought they had a good safety and health record really didn't because they didn't understand the problems in their workplace either. And so we came up with what was called a new directions program. We give grants to uh, uh, associations and uh, nonprofits that companies were part of uh, to uh, examine the, sa- the safety and health records in their workplace. And then a, a strategy was uh, to use our resources to go after the worst cases, you know, not just to respond. I found that their strategy was mainly to re- respond to complaints. Well, the complainers weren't always in the uh, places where the problems were the worst. So we developed a strategy uh, to go after the worst uh, cases and induce as much self-regulation as you could in the other workplaces. That was what having a good staff and freedom to do whatever you wanted to. The other thing you might recall, we were having problems in those days with uh, trying to save American companies that were being uh, losing market share to the Japanese, you know, steel industry was in trouble. Our auto industry was in trouble. So one of the lessons I learned from John Dunlop was the value of having tripartite committees to work on problems. And uh, we formed, uh, I found out that the government didn't know a lot of what was going on, about what was going on in the companies. The companies didn't know a lot about what 
uh, government was doing, and they were all assigning false causes to problems. And we these tripartite committees, I had a rule. I co-chaired it with the other appropriate cabinet officer. And the rule was nobody recommends anything until we agree on the facts. And uh, I learned that as a mediator. You know, if you can get people to agree on the facts, you come a long way toward uh, narrowing the differences between people. Well, uh, we had tripartite teams study the industry, go around the world looking at the, uh, auto, steel, uh, and other industries. And after uh, a, a short time after we got involved in that, I asked the parties, uh, what has surprised you all most about this exercise? And almost in unison, the president of the Steelworkers Union, Lloyd McBride, and the spokesperson for the steel companies, uh, Dave Roderick, said, how little we knew about the steel business. <laughs> you know, they knew a lot about what they were doing, but they didn't know about the steel business worldwide and how, how the model they had was an oligopolistic model with collective bargaining attached to it. So every time they'd have a strike, they'd lose market share. And they were not paying attention to the quality of the steel. They were paying attention mainly to cost and quantity. Well, all of that yeah, put American industry uh, in trouble. You know, if they got in trouble, they cut uh, output and uh, tried to maintain prices, which what the oligopolistic model does. Well, that was uh, a loser in the 1970s and in an uh, increasingly globalized market. Well, all that, those committees made it possible for us to do a lot to improve the condition of those industry. So I'm proud of that. You know, I think the tripartite committees you know, did a great job. It's too bad that the Reagan administration did away with them. And when uh, Mike Baldridge, their Secretary of Commerce, said he thought, they told me once after we left office, that he thought it was a mistake for them to have done that. And I said, why did they do it? And he said, well, President Reagan thought it was socialistic to have labor management and government working together on problems. And the uh, reality, as you well know, is that we all uh, have a stake in the success of the construction industry and then the aircraft and other industries. And if we all work together, we've got a whole lot better chance of making them succeed than if we don't. Now, my biggest, you ask about failure, uh, my biggest disappointment was the failure to pass labor law reform. Uh, as you know, our la our labor laws are based on the realities of the 1930s, not even of the 1970s of where we are now. And I worked very hard on that. Uh, we worked out a pretty good model. We had bipartisan support for it. We passed it through the uh, House of Representatives with a 94-vote ma uh, majority which you don't hardly ever do on uh, controversial legislation. And we never could break a filibuster. We had 59 votes for passage in the Senate, but I never could get the 60th uh, to get it passed. I think the country's in much worse shape than it would have been if we had been able to succeed with that legislation. And uh, I think a good bit of what's happened to us you know, beginning in the 1980s and 90s with growing inequality of wealth and income and uh, other problems that we were having would, wouldn't have been there if that had 
had been the, if we had succeeded with that legislation. It's funny you echo uh, your your what you just said echoes what Tom Culkin said in uh, in a recent po- in a recent podcast uh, about the way the labor laws are structured. So that one of the things you learn from this experience is that you got to do more than figure out what the right thing to do. Is you got to figure out a way to get it done. And in our our political system it's becoming increasingly difficult to get it done i i want to we have to come to the end of our or toward the end of our podcast now and I, I would like to ask you one final question which is pretty broad you you've originally worked on the question of labor unions in the south and that's a long time ago you've been there for a long time and seen what's happened what's your current view about what's likely to occur with labor movements in the South going forward? Well, I think um, it all depends on what we do in the country. You know, what I think the beginning of, uh, of uh, a solution to most of our problems is to pass good legislation. Now, uh, the legislation makes it easier for companies to avoid unions than it does for the workers to organize and bargain collectively. And I think that's unfortunate. One of the main reasons that uh, the South has resisted unions so much uh, is because they believe that unions interfere with economic development and that unions could be very beneficial to economic development that's based on improving productivity and quality rather than competing with wages. The South has always been, at the beginning when I first started working on problems in the South, attracting industry, it's on its way to the third world anyway. And you'd be a lot better off to do what we actually did in Austin. You know, when we developed economic development for Austin, we said, not try to advertise our low wages uh, and absence of unions, but to emphasize the quality of our workforce, uh, emphasize uh, developing high-tech industry, and we've done that, you know, and, it, and that's the way the South, whole South should have done. I think the, the so-called right to work laws are abominations. And their main purpose is to advertise your anti-union position. You know, it hasn't got a whole lot to do with the right to work. I think they ought to be called free rider laws because what they really look what they do. They say if a majority of the workers vote for a union, that union is required by law to represent all those workers fairly and without hostile discrimination. And uh, yet it's if you want to, to make everybody pay for their representation, whether they're members of the union or not, you can't do that. Well, you know from economics that if you get free riders in any kind of activity, you're going to have weak activity. And I think that's part of our problem now. But I do, uh, on the other side of that, that's the negative. The positive is that unions are growing in popularity in the South and everywhere. And, if we get, and we found that out, you know, from the uh, Dunlop Commission that I served on. Uh, there were many more workers out who want to be unionized than are unionized. And if uh, we create an a equal playing field so that workers have an equal chance to get organized, more of them would be organized. But as long as we handicap it like we've got it now with obsolete laws uh, and policies, uh, you're not going to be able to get 
you know, get the kind of you know, labor movement that we need. But I think that e- even now, I think what's happening, and that's what I predict will happen, is that people will find ways to get representation without having to go through the legal process. And uh, uh, that's happening in the South and in, in other places uh, because workers can see the need for to be represented in the workplace. And I think it's in the national interest that they be represented in the workplace. I think labor organizations are fundamental to a democratic society. And uh, more people who can see that and believe it, I think the better off we'll be. But anyway, the final answer Orly is that I don't really know what's going to happen. I think that uh, a lot depends on what we do with politics. As, as Ken Galbraith used to say, when it comes to forecasting, there are two kinds of economists. There are those who don't know, and there are those who don't know they don't know. Well, the advantage I've got is I know I don't know. All right. It's been just an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I hope you had as much fun as I did. Yeah, I did. Our guest today has been Ray Marshall, the Rappaport Centennial Chair in Economics and Public Affairs and Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Texas at Austin. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.